1: Welcome to the New Books Network. The biblical book of Esther reads like a classic fable, a drama of actors who are recognizable archetypes. There's Esther, the beautiful orphan who becomes queen, Ahasuerus, the buffoon king, Haman, the prototype of evil, and Mordecai, the wise, courageous, and loyal hero. Today's guest will show us that there's a lot more to the story. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Van Leer Jerusalem series on ideas. I'm Renee Garfinkel, your host, and I'm pleased to welcome Erica Brown to the show today to talk about her new book, Esther, Power, Fate, and Fragility in Exile. Dr. Erica Brown is Vice Provost for Values and Leadership at Yeshiva University and is the founding director of the Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs Herenstein Center for Values and Leadership. She's the author of books on leadership, the Hebrew Bible, and spirituality. Erica Brown, welcome to the podcast.
0: Thank you, Renee. Thank you so much for having me. It's a delight to be with you.
1: Let's begin with talking a little bit about yourself, Erica. Who and what were major influences in your own intellectual development?
0: Wow, that's a that's a big question. Um, I would certainly say that the year I spent in Michlalah in Israel was very formative, studying under Chaim Bravender and with Malkabina. Um, those were very uh, formative years in my own religious growth and in thinking about. Becoming a Jewish educator and deciding to devote my life to uh, to, to different forms of uh and the interpretive process most generally um, I was very fortunate to study as a graduate uh, i was fortunate to study at Yeshiva University as an undergraduate to study philosophy and general and Jewish studies I worked closely with dr. David Schatz as a graduate student, I had the great good fortune of being uh, supervised. My master's thesis supervisor was Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, who later went on to become the chief rabbi uh, and um, and studied closely with Isidore Torsky Professor Isidore Torsky the Talna Rebbe, um, later at Harvard. So I would say that that, that those are, are some of the many names of people who've had an influence in my thinking
1: um, and um, and in the work that I do. Well, it's an all-star cast of people in the field. Uh, unpack your title for us, Esther, Power, Fate, and Fragility in Exile. What are you trying to convey with the title?
0: Uh, that's, a, that's a great question, Renee, because I think titles are the attempt that all authors make to give us some kind of window into the perspective Um, you know, the book of Esther is the book of Esther. It's really, in this case, it's the subtitle. You know, the the book was already named. Um, And I kept seeing this sort of tug of war between power and powerlessness, um, the consideration, the tensions between authority and autonomy, uh, key questions about Jewish identity and influence. And all of this was taking place in a diaspora community, trying to figure out um, how do you Initially, how do you survive in climates that are hostile, um, that are random, that are arbitrary, where your security can one day seem evident and the next be taken away? And then, how do you go from a position of survival to a position of influence? So there's the you know the the I, I felt that the word fragility was critical. Um, I, I toyed with vulnerability. I I I I stayed with fragility because I think. That we want to see this as the story of success in the diaspora, and on many levels it was, but it was also very temporal. And just as our, um, just as the uh, the edict against us uh, was total, um, applied to all 127 provinces of Achashverosh Achashveros's rule, um, then then all of a sudden these letters are sent out that change the fate yet again. And um, and what who's to say that it won't that it won't change back. In fact, if we have time, Renee, I'll read a few alternate endings that I wrote to this book, because as its readers will know, in Chapter 10, there are only three verses. And I think there's something quite intentional about that hard stop, that unexpected hard stop, because it's. Um, the, the only three verses um, is, is, is a fraction of the size of the median chapters in the book of Esther.
1: The text of the book of Esther is perhaps deceptively simple. It's almost like a fairy tale, but you know that it can be read at several different levels. Explain those levels to us.
0: Well, let's say it can be an entertaining story. It can be a theological challenge. In this version, as opposed to the Greek version of Esther, we, have, we don't have God mentioned. And that becomes a persistent issue for commentaries. Certainly medieval commentaries, pre-modern commentaries were, I would say, fixated on finding God's presence in the book. Because how could all of this befall us without God's hovering concern and care. Um, I would say you can read this as a discussion of governance, leadership, gender, and a social commentary on life in the diaspora. And I actually think the simplicity of it, it, it you know, when I was, I was thinking about uh, writing for the series, for the Mondgate series, um, and, and Cohen, who have been such a wonderful, uh, who's been a wonderful publisher for me for many years. When I was thinking about this book, Part of me said, "I know it has a long exegetical history that's very rich, but the story is so simple, and I think that's the the beguiling beauty of it is that you layer on this story all kinds of social commentary about the way Jews lived in the diaspora for thousands of years. Jews before we wrote history, um, Jews wrote commentary, and they put their history in small glimpses and snippets within commentary. So, for example." One of the things I note that I think is a very important feature of the of the exegetical history of Esther is that in the sixteenth century there were more commentaries on the Book of Esther than there had been cumulatively for all the years before that. Now, if you dig a little bit deeper—not even that deep—you um, know that the sixteenth century was the century after the exile of Jews from Spain and then later from Portugal, making the entire Iberian Peninsula um, uh, free of of Jews with an outward commitment to Judaism. And then then there was a shakeup of the entire diaspora community. So it's no wonder to me that you've got a book that's searching for God's name and place uh, after this cataclysmic event. It's no wonder to me that you've got people thinking about um, what kind of monarchy treats Jews uh, in a way that enables them to live and thrive, who are our enemies, who are our friends, can we know the difference? These are all uh, issues that come up as a result of an event which is, was determining and defining in Jewish history.
1: Now, the Book of Esther is read on a particular Jewish holiday, Purim, Uh, a word that means lottery. And the story itself swirls with issues of luck and risk, control and chance. Mm. What is the author trying to say about these concepts?
0: Um, I I think we all, and perhaps in the COVID climate that we've been in, I think we're all very aware of the, the fragility and the randomness of life. I mean, how many of us could would have assumed only a few years ago that a pandemic would sweep through the world, really changing in many ways, institutions and interactions that we've had for decades, uh, changing the nature of work, changing the nature of, of recreation. I, I think that you, you, you have events that seem to come upon us in a random way that become transformative in the way that we see the world, in the way that we interact with the world. So I think the idea of chance is is an important feature of of diaspora life. Um, That's not to say that Israel is free of chance, but I think when you are in the diaspora and you're not under Jewish governance and autonomy, um, Jews, you know before before Jews could have citizenship, we were always servi servants of the king. We, we sort of needed to uh, get special protections and pay special taxes. And if a new king, as we have in the Bible, melech a new king arose over Israel who did not know Joseph in Exodus one. and now the fate of the Jews changes from people of influence. To people who um, who live precar- precariously, who who now are uh, suffer at the hands of Pharaoh and his um, and his rule. So I think I think the the aspect of of randomness it just really travels throughout the Megillah um, and may lead to randomness after Mordechai's ascent.
1: Uh, one could say that each of the characters. Uh, in the book of Esther, deal with the concepts of randomness, control, uh, risk, and luck uh, differently. Can you speak to the different characters and how they approach these issues?
0: Well, it's, it, it's interesting. that The Talmud certainly, in, uh, in, in Tractate Megillah, the Talmud sort of looks at these characters, um, Achashverosh and Haman, or, you know, Haman being totally evil, Achashverosh questioning whether he's evil or perhaps just foolish. Um, Is he a tipesh? Is he stupid? Or is he malevolent? And so sometimes, um, you know, sometimes it's not not clear. I would say that within the literary framework of characters who are static and characters who are dynamic, you've certainly got Achashverosh um, and Esther as the dynamic characters, the characters who seem to change and move um, with new pieces of information and new challenges. And then you have Haman and, and Mordecai, Haman and Mordecai as the two polarities of goodness and evil. So those those sort of frameworks, I think, are very redolent of, um, of, of creating a space in between for the characters, for Ahasuerus and Esther, to sort of navigate these polarities and see where they fit in. When Mordecai invites Esther in chapter four to consider her position, uh, to consider whether or not she can use her platform for the survival and good of her people, he's actually inviting her, this innocent, um, into a decision-making, um, a decision, a decision-making state that will redefine. Her life and put her life at risk. Um, one of the things that's that's fascinating and is picked up in Rabbinic Midrash is that Esther is an orphan. We're told that she has no parents and that Mordechai is a foster parent, and um, and this information uh, makes us understand that when you don't have parents, which is a common theme in uh, in literature. The, the, the separation from a parent that creates leadership. So Joseph um, is separated from his parents for a long period of time. Um, Moshe is at uh, three months old set down the Nile, although he's nursed by his mother, Yochebe, his, he, he he's actually raised in the home of, uh, raised and, and, and marries in the home of a Midianite. Uh, these characters who are far away from their parents or, have, or don't have any parents are always at potential peril, but they also have nothing to lose in effect, right? There's some element of the capacity for risk that's very intriguing about these characters. Um, Martin Buber in his book on Moses, uh, discusses why someone would put up with uh, a complaining people for 40 years in the wilderness. And yet, if you have been disconnected from home, the desire to find home becomes a deep compulsion. So there's a certain feeling, if you like, of that hole, that vacuum, And I think uh, giving us this background of Esther's, the fact that Esther's an orphan, really helps us understand some of the motivations for her
1: behaviors. That's a very uh, interesting observation because it is typical of fairy tales uh, and stories of children that have adventures, so early readers, let's say, Mm -hmm. that the child hero uh, has no parents or at least no mother. Uh to, uh to enable it, that character, to become to have adventures. There's nobody yeah. protecting uh, and also separating the child from the rest of the world.
0: Yeah, and they're also dangerous, Renee. In other words, yes. you think of Lord of the Flies, right? So there's the boxcar children and there's the Harry Potters, um, but then there's also the Lord of the Flies, of, of what happens when there's no protector. And that's why I think it's it's critical that the text says that Mordechai was an omane. He was a caretaker or protector for Esther. It was so that Esther enjoys, if you like, both states, the, the, the capacity to undertake risk, but also the protection and guidance. Mordechai is always about the pass, uh, about the castle, right? He's always in the Shar HaMelech. He's, he's at the gate of the king. He's paying attention to where Esther is and the issues that, that, that uh, will affect her in this mentoring posture. So she's never completely alone but at the same time, existentially, she of course is always alone. And in her position, um, and and this, this, by the way, I think is beautifully done, Renee, with the use of eunuchs of Sarisim throughout the text of people who are ministers. I mean, you're really getting a sense of what the Persian court would have looked like so that Mordechai and Esther cannot communicate directly. They communicate only through the words and you have to trust that the eunuch is going to pass on your words from one figure to the other, and that in itself shows you what happens in the court, but also in the diaspora, where your message can get garbled, where you have to trust the um, the, the intermediaries in these stories. So they play an important role, and I'm 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 always interested in minor characters in Tanakh and the Hebrew Bible. So uh, so I have a chapter describing the role that these, uh, these individuals play. Um, certainly there, 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 Esther could not have succeeded had she not been encouraged and protected within the court by foreign outsiders who wanted to see her place strategically. And that happens again and again.
1: Yes, they're all, all levels of both the good guys and the bad guys. And uh, let's turn back to the bad guys for a minute. Uh, <laughs> bad guys are
0: always more fun. <laughs> yes, they are.
1: <laughs> so, so Haman is the prototype of a particular kind of evil. It's a kind we recognize too well in the 21st and in the 20th century. The uh, the evil of hatred toward a minority group. In this case, the Jews. Uh, what specifically, if if you can address that, does the character of Haman teach us about haters and hatred?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think uh, I think if if anything, Haman is having a resurgence and uh, and his moment. I mean, I I really believe that this is the oldest recorded incident of anti-Semitism uh, uh, occurs in chapter three, verse eight, where Haman. Because Jews were different and he th- therefore assumed that Jews did not observe the law, he felt that they weren't worthy of living. That, that is, you know, imagine in contemporary politics that, uh, that, a, that a leader would come to the conclusion, if you're different, you, you shouldn't live here. Um, and you should or you shouldn't live at all. I mean that Those kind of conclusions create anxiety within a polity and create uh, create anxiousness. If I were living in one of the other if I were living in one of the 127 provinces, I might say to myself, um, wait a minute, if 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 a minister can affect a king in this way, who makes this kind of decree? Who's to say that I'm not next? So I think there's the sense that the hatred that befalls the Jews becomes the hatred that can befall all of humanity at some point. And I think Haman, um, Haman symbolizes all of this. And um, I just want to read something from Esther Raba, the, um, the commentary, the main rabbinic commentary on the book of Esther. When the wicked Haman said to Ahasuerus, let us destroy Israel, Ahasuerus replied, you will not win because their God will never forsake them. See what he did to the kings of old who attacked Israel. These kings were stronger and mightier than I, but in the end they became a laughing stock throughout the world. Therefore, stop pressing me on this matter. Nevertheless, the wicked Haman continued to press Achashverosh constantly and to give him evil advice about Israel. If so, said Achashverosh, let us consult the sages and sorcerers. And he gathered all the sages of the nations of the world. They all came up before him and said in unison, if you destroy Israel, the world will cease to exist. So what's interesting in this Midrash, I mean, I think it's a fascinating Midrash, is that you're seeing, if you like, the, the boardroom, ashversh's boardroom and Haman's there and the two of them are consulting and Haman becomes the constant um, voice for um you know for for um, for expulsion for destruction for annihilation and ahashver says no oh, this is just not a good idea and they bring others to consult with who say that's just not a good idea um and an anti-semitism hatred is just never a good idea. But that's not to say that it doesn't happen, and that's not to say that it isn't a force that has to be reckoned with again and again. Uh, one of the things that was interesting to me as I, as I was studying, as I was uh, I was working on writing the book, is uh, you know customs that that uh, evolved over the centuries, um, where the book of Esther was repurposed of to and Haman became the villain of the day. So I can say that uh, I was living in Efrat in Israel and it was uh, a Purim came out right after Saddam Hussein was uh, was killed and an effigy of Saddam Hussein appeared in the first mention of Haman it was sort of thrown over the women's gallery of a synagogue. Now I have to say it was it was a little bit frightening for me. Um but it's not the first time in history that something like that has occurred where people say these stories, they just keep reappearing in our lives. They become the story of our lives, the story of the villain who's always present and yet the and yet the hero who's also always present. And and, and so, Renee, we mentioned this is a simple story. It's a simple story, but it's a simple recurring story. And that's what makes it, I think, compelling and that's why we keep turning to it, because it's in some way, this, we, we hope for influence in the general world. We want to make contributions to society at large. We want to be the Joseph who economically saves Pharaoh and brings, uh, and brings influence uh, to, to his own people. But that always comes with the risk that we become too influential and then our enemies surface and they make life very, very difficult.
1: You uh, you mentioned the roles of the minor characters in supporting Esther and Mordecai, uh, the good guys. Um, what does the book have to say about the enablers of the villain Haman's family and community?
0: Yeah, I mean, who cannot love Zeresh? I mean, she is she she's the you know Haman's uh, wife, and she's the one. Who sort of, um, you know, on the one hand goads him on, but when Mordecai becomes increasingly successful, she's the one who says, "I could have predicted this all along." In other words, this this was obvious. If you knew anything about the Jews, you 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 know that this is going to happen. So I think that th- those those minor characters give us a little insight. Uh, because they're a foil for the major characters. so she's she's always sort of uh, if you like, um showing us what the what the uh, temperature is. um the other major character I want to speak, the minor character who is who is major is Vashti. Uh, we haven't talked about her at all, um but there would be no Esther had there been no Vashti, and not only because Esther replaced Vashti as the king's consort, but because. Vashti paid a steep price for confronting the king and Esther had to learn from Vashti how do you approach the king how do you instead of boldly uh, confronting or rebelling or challenging How do you gently challenge the king? She becomes much more. I mean, she becomes political and diplomatic, and in her understanding, that there are ways to get things done in courts, and sometimes confronting a person with power about the truth of a situation is does not necessarily work, and can end up bringing your own demise. I do have to say as a a side point, Renee, that many years ago when I lived in Boston, a neighbor of mine had a dog named Vashti. I said, why did you name the dog Vashti? And he said, because she never (laughs) listens.
1: That's a good one. Yeah, it
0: is. It is a good one. It's true. (laughs) That's, that's what makes it even better.
1: Right. Right. Um, well, in case any listeners don't know, the uh, planned genocide in the Book of Esther was averted, um, and the Book of Esther tells us, uh, after the danger is passed, that the fear of Jews fell upon them, upon the others, non-Jews in the kingdom. What does that mean, Erica? Does it mean that the Persians were Judeophobic?
0: Um, so it's it's it, it, it's interesting, and uh, and obviously you've got a nice uh, like a, a, an interesting history about um, you know what what this actually means. Um, there are people who believed that it meant that Jews converted. Um, there, you know, that non-Jews converted uh, because in an opportunistic way they said, "Oh well, you know, here people were successful; these Jews were successful. Who could have predicted this sort of miracle?" And then. And then um and then they decided to uh convert. I will say that I was in a room many, many years ago uh where uh I had organized an event on the ethics of journalism and I had a broadcast journalist speaking with Rabbi Joseph Telushkin and he asked he was talking about the change of perception of Jewish influence in the world, and he basically said to people, "How many of you in this audience of about a few hundred? How many of you know anyone who has converted out of Judaism?" And there were only a handful of, um, you know, ha- a handful of people raised uh, r- raised a hand uh, to let him, you know, to let him know. And then he said, "Well, how many of you know someone who's converted to Judaism?" And, and virtually everyone in the room raised a hand. He said 100 years ago, it would have been the reverse. So there is something about Jewish success that appeals to people. But the term here is pachat, and pachat is... Is fear right? And it was a, the, you know mit uh, They pro- in, in Esther eight seventeen they they professed or they converted, um, but they were you know they were um, they were afraid. So uh, Rabbi Alan Liu in his book Be Still and Get Going, um, he describes pachad as the fear of the phantom, the fear whose object is imagined, um, and that pachad makes its first appearance in Genesis thirty one forty two when Jacob confronts uh, Laban, Lavan, his father-in-law, after um, after decades of exploitation, had not the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac, Pachad Yitzchak, been with me, you would have sent me away empty-handed. And this this idea, I mean, it's, it's a strange ex- expression, Pachat Yitzchak, uh, alerts the reader to Jacob's primal anxiety, the fear of his father, a fear decades in the making that began with Jacob's uh, lie and and so fear is interesting um, and and I think the fear here not dissimilar to Jacob's fear of the deception that he placed on his father and then and then and then and he himself later was deceived. But we have to think about all of those who tried to kill Jews, um, who joined in Akash Barish's edict, um, because remember seven seventy five thousand five hundred eleven. Uh, persians die in this in this book jews were only allowed to fight in their own self defense so we have to assume that that those that all of those people who died at least according to the book were people who set out to destroy jews that's that's a lot of hate from your neighbors how could you not feel afraid when your neighbors then become empowered that this will be this power will be then used against you how could Joseph's brothers not fear that when they revealed themselves that Joseph would seek his revenge? And I think that's really, you know, the ultimate in fear of um, Haim Shmulevitz in his uh, wonderful book, Sikhot Musar, uh, describes um, Nivahalu, the certain fear expressed in Genesis 45 when Joseph's brothers, uh, when Joseph's brothers, hear Joseph say, I am Joseph, Ani Yosef, haoda is my father, not is our father, is my father still alive? And he describes that, that, that verb that's used, the tremulousness of fear, as a way of suggesting that, uh, that there's a certain kind of fear, Renee, that's the fear when you thought that something you did wrong a long time ago would never catch up to you. So imagine now, in the book of Esther, you wanted to kill your neighbor. You were about to kill your neighbor, but then your neighbor became powerful. But your neighbor, no, your, your the Jewish neighbor knows all about what you plotted to do, and um, and and then you live with that fear that uh, that 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 um, that you've been found out and that there may be consequences to that. And I think that that's very, very
1: powerful. Well, since we're talking about the end of the book, tell us about the alternate endings that you wrote.
0: Yeah, (laughs) yeah. Um, So that was actually um, the most fun of the book, um, was writing the alternate endings. And um, I say that because, you know, the book is only, the the book ends with this chapter 10, which is only three, verses long. And Esther 10.2 says all his his mighty and powerful acts, uh, this is about Mordecai, and a full account of the greatness to which the king advanced Mordecai recorded in the annals of the kings of Medea and Persia, sort of saying, if you want more about this story, turn here. And you could see that as um, an ending, which is no ending at all, saying, we're not ending here, check another book for our ending. Um, but I think actually the fact that the book ends um so uh so quickly, it's ending on the high note. It's ending on the note that Esther uh, Esther and Mordechai were victorious. And um and so and and by the way, all three of those verses in the last chapter are really disconnected and discordant. Um so you know, why end the story here? Um certainly there's much more to say about the the Jews in Persia and their future. Um but I want to suggest that the abrupt end may be a literary device that suggests an underlying message in the story. In this diaspora tale, the author chose to end on a happy note. The Jews were a protected nation. Ending the story here might allow future readers to delude themselves into believing that life would stay this way. By cutting off the story so sharply, the author suggests that such an idyllic storyline cannot possibly be sustained. The book stops here for narrative purposes, but there's no real end because the historical story of the Jews will no doubt cycle downward again, um, as it does in the diaspora. And uh, and will we be prepared for it? Um, so I, I, I'll, is it OK, Renee, for me to read my three sure, endings?
1: please? please. Yeah. OK.
0: OK. So and you'll see each of them is sourced in a biblical, in, 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 a, in, a, in, a, in a recognizable biblical story. After Mordechai, this is um, scene number one. After Mordechai increased taxation, the people grumbled against the Jews and the enmity they had in the days of Haman was renewed. At this time, Chatach was elevated to chief steward of the royal house. He suggested that the king celebrate his renewed coffers with another royal feast. Thus the king invited all of his officers in all his satrapies to come to Shushan for a seven day banquet. And a proclamation was written and delivered throughout the empire in the language of each and every nation, that all were to drink without limit. After Achashverosh was full of with wine, he asked for his wife Esther to be brought to his chambers before his nobles to display her beauty. So, the increased taxation is—you um, know—we we end in, in in chapter ten with mortified increasing taxation. Increasing taxation is always a danger zone. When you increase taxes. People develop resentments against you. This certainly happened in the Joseph story, where Joseph, in order to save um, in the the seven years, uh, prepare in the seven years of plenty for the seven years of leanness, uh, Joseph made uh, incredible economic, um, uh, made the situation economically pressing for for Egypt how would that not have a backlash and so what happens here is a cycle and the cycle is that as Ahasuerus becomes more powerful because he has more taxes and then he has a party he does the same thing he did in the last party and now Esther is uh, is in the place of Vashti um, here's the second end Esther and Ahasuerus had a child and the child's name was Darius Esther went into the king unsummoned and the king laid forth the scepter and said, what is your wish, Queen Esther, up to half the kingdom and it shall be given to you. And Esther said, my plea and my request, if I have found favor in your eyes, is that Darius inherit the throne in the fullness of days? And the king was filled with rage. The son of Vashti is the firstborn heir. It is to him that I bequeath the kingdom. So that's, um, that's, a you know, the story of continuity. Uh, there's a little of Bathsheba and Solomon, Bathsheba and Shlomo here in terms of, you know, who is it enough for this story to end here, or does the true story of influence lie in having Esther's progeny as part of the story? And this, it's, it's unusual that we have no children in this story. So, you know, filling in that detail. Uh, The third end here is, and it was recorded in the Annals of Persia and Medea, that Ahasuerus was old and was gathered unto his ancestors, and his son took the royal throne. This son was not like his father and did evil in God's eyes. Thus a new king had risen over 127 provinces who did not know Mordechai and Esther. The Jews of Shushan had grown numerous as the stars in the sky and the dust of the land. The king said to his people, look, the Israelite people are too numerous for us. Let us deal wisely with them so that they do not increase less than a time of war. They join forces against us and rise up from the ground. So notice there's a few different um, uh, sources here. One of them is Divrei Hayamim, the book of Chronicles, where you know one king dies, the son inherits a throne, the son changes things. And then we have the story that comes straight out of Exodus, that as the Jews become numerous in the diaspora the perception of royalty is that they, be, they are a fifth column. They're an internal threat, and they have to be managed accordingly. So those are three biblically sourced endings um, that are endings that happen in diaspora stories. But our story chooses not to give us that ending, perhaps uh, enabling the imagination to put the pieces together of what could have happened. And... None of my endings are positive.
1: No, and actually, in different ways, they're all cyclical. yeah did you did you intend them to be that? Absolutely. Yeah. I think that's you know I think that's the story I think
0: that's the story of Jewish life in the diaspora. and I'd like to say that the story of Zion, is the story of advancement, is moving the, secular, uh, the, the cyclical, uh, circular sort of history where, you know, bad things happen. Then we have a moment, a temporal uh, oasis from that. And there's some Jewish influence, but then the influence becomes a threat. And then we go back to the same story, is to say that the story of Gula, of redemption uh, in 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 Israel, is the story of forward progress. So sort of breaking the cycle and saying that Jewish autonomy and authority can result in a different ending, in a, if you will, a happier ending.
1: Finally, Erica, you have a lovely chapter on silence and expansive commentary on Queen Esther's reticence. Talk about the Bible's views of silence.
0: Well, certainly, I think um, I think that uh, Kohelet probably says it best. Uh, the Book of Ecclesiastes in three seven, there's a time to keep silent and a time to speak. And if politics is anything, it's figuring out when to speak and when to be silent. And I think that's the work of leadership is to know when to activate the voice and and when not to. And so you see Esther sort of playing with that throughout. Of And Mordecai it, directing her, you know, here's when you need to hide your identity and here's when you have to reveal your identity. And, um, and it's, I think the, the, the interplay of these two characters is important because we, we don't always know when we, we should be silent and, um, and when we should speak out. And sometimes we, we get the encouragement or the nudge from someone else this is your time, this is the time to, um, you know, this is the time to speak. Um, if, you, if you look, um, you know, Esther's, you know, o- always obeys when she's told to, uh, to be silent. And um, even though she spoke when necessary, speaking almost seemed to be a struggle for her. Uh, the notion of holding one's tongue assumes a natural impulse to speak that has to be controlled. Uh, it assumes that Esther was inclined to talk had she been not been told otherwise, but generally she's laconic, right? She she has a few sentences with um, Haggai, but otherwise there you know, she speaks uh, she speaks very little and very few words when she uh, does speak. So we're almost unsure why Mordechai needed to tell her to be silent if silence was her natural uh, posture. Um, I just want to share with you something that Mahatma Gandhi wrote to a friend in a letter. Um, that I included in that chapter because i was I was thinking about Esther's silence, and you need to tell someone who's generally silent to be quiet. He says, "What shall I write to you? Everybody complains that you talk too much. You should sit alone somewhere. I have taken to prolonging my silence. It gives me joy and happiness. It's the only remedy for you. And I, you know politics in particular offers, is, offers many opportunities for foolish, ill-spoken words that often come back to haunt the speaker in the form of broken promises and unmet expectations. Now, it could be that Mordechai was afraid that Esther was very young. And she was unable to maybe speak intelligently to the royal court because there are all kinds of protocols about how you speak in a court, or maybe that she lacked the political or diplomatic know-how um, to handle the situation. Um, some people, some scholars, believe that Esther's silence is actually, in some way, mimicking the larger national silence of the of Jew, Jewish life in the diaspora. That that um, that you know will quiet we don't draw attention to ourselves because drawing attention to ourselves can have uh, you know can have consequences uh, but at the same time i think one thing that's very powerful is that when mortify challenges esther in chapter 4 to rise to the occasion and she says kasher avaditi avaditi okay if i die i die i'm willing to make my life sacrifice to propel the jewish story forward, that she begins to command Mordecai, that she uses her voice to command him where she has previously been commanded. And I think that shows there's this inflection point in her own leadership where she understands, as she's contemplating all the consequences of making this decision, she understands for the first time what it means to have a voice. That doesn't mean that she becomes loquacious it means that she understands diplomatically how she must use her voice to um, to shift the circumstances of of the political situation of her family and of her people and i think i think in many ways that leaves us certain lessons about how negotiate uh life in the diaspora when faced with anti-Semitism, when faced with hatred, is, is the constant vigilance. And that doesn't mean, silence doesn't mean um, agreement. Silence can mean paying attention for the right moment to say the right thing, to advocate in the right way that will get the right results.
1: Erica, it's been a pleasure talking with you today. Before I let you go, tell us a little about what you're working on now. Um, So I'm actually working on Kohelet,
0: um, the book of Ecclesiastes, which has been a really interesting COVID project uh, because I think so many things that that Kohelet questions, that the book questions in terms of the value of work and the value of life and the prevalence of death and uh, the seasons that are there for everything, they've taken on a very rich and deep tone during uh, COVID where we've where, where we, you know, we've had a lot of books and articles and I'm sure much research to come on the changing nature of work on, uh, on the, you know, the, the fragility of life, um, on, on illness and, and good health. So it's been a, it's been a really great time to work on the book and, uh, it's not going to be out for, for this Sukkot, um, but hopefully it'll be out, uh, sometime in 2023.
1: Well, lots of good luck with that project. Ecclesiastes is my own favorite uh, book of the Hebrew Bible. Uh, thank I'm you so glad much. you
0: said that, <laughs> Cause Yes. some people, someone said to me, "Are you taking Prozac while you're writing that book?" And uh, you know, because <laughs> I think there are people who find it just too depressing. And I, I actually, I think there's something uh, profoundly optimistic in uh, in his stance in the world. So thank you for saying that.
1: Well, I'm a psychologist by profession, and one of my colleagues many years ago said, had there been Prozac, we would not have had the book of Ecclesiastes. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. Well, lots of good luck with the project, and thanks for coming on the show today.
0: Oh, it's been such
1: a treat to be with you. Thank you so much. And thanks to our researcher, Bela Pasikov. If you've enjoyed this conversation, please subscribe to the Van Leer Institute series on ideas wherever you find your podcasts.